Yeah, Marty, humans are musical creatures. A typical fact-free assertion, Art. Have you heard me at karaoke? I'll pass. But hear me out. You don't need to be a musical prodigy to have musicality. Ever got a song stuck in your head? Maybe something catchy from TikTok? Or a jingle from an advertisement? Of course, who hasn't? Hot Pockets! Or Bye Minute. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Well, that's musicality in action. Musicality refers to the set of traits that allow us to perceive and understand characteristics of music, like rhythm, tone, and pitch. We express our musicality by tapping our feet or swaying along to the beat or anticipating the next note. Our guest today, Professor Hinkian Honing from the University of Amsterdam, focuses on the biology of musicality. His research examines what musicality is, its cognitive and biological building blocks, and why some animals have it and others don't. In our field, we, we're not so much looking at whether or discussing whether something is music or not, or good music or bad music, but actually what are the skills that you need as a human or as a machine if you're doing computer science in order to recognize and appreciate music. Inkyan is especially interested in why close relatives of ours, including rhesus macaques and chimpanzees, are less musical than cockatoos and sea lions. Remember Snowball, the dancing cockatoo who went viral a couple of years ago? Well, why does Snowball dance to the Backstreet Boys, but chimps don't? One theory involves vocal learning, something we discussed with Eric Jarvis back in episode 58. Many people think that vocal learning is a prerequisite for musicality. The brains of vocal learners are presumably wired to recognize patterns in syntax, intonation, and dynamics in language, and that wiring carries over to music. But this theory is complicated by the fact that not every species that displays musicality also has vocal learning. In this episode, we talked to Hinkyan about these topics and more, which are covered in his recent book, The Evolving Animal Orchestra. We also talk about why French babies cry differently than German ones, whether AI systems will ever make music better than Bach, and whether there are clear paths to understanding the evolutionary origins of music in humans. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. It's, it's just a thrill to have you on the show, and um, thank, thanks for coming on. We're looking forward to talking about many things, music and musicality, and about your relatively recent book, The Evolving Animal Orchestra. Let's start just by asking you a little bit about your own background and path into this, this place where you are right now. So are, are you a musician yourself, and um, what, what's the origin of your academic interest in, in music and musicality? Yeah, I, I turned to science very late in my life. So I, I started as a musician. My whole my f- whole family, they're all musicians. So I was also destined to be a piano player or piano teacher or something in the music field. But then in the 80s, the first computers arrived. The first synthesizers actually first that I pl- could still integrate with my piano playing, but then the real computers and synthesizers. And then I got really interested in this machinery and I thought it was the future. And I think music, folk music making was something old-fashioned, <laughs> something to, that would obviously die and uh, the computer would take over. So I was in this very in this utopian mood that was in this research institute where I was studying the Institute for Sonology. That was really the future. Uh, composers like Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and Georg Hilligati who really also saw this all this potential of these machinery uh, and probably doing better or at precisely what you want as a composer. 
And I was sort of, that made me really, that was my first switch that I made from a practicing musician to more like a composer and trying to control the machine. And then I think it was, the end, I was at the end of my 20s, then I, I was trying to make a, comp a composition for two percussion players. And then the role of the computer was not to make sound, but to listen to these percussion players and sort of direct them in, this, in, in, in the end to play exactly the same thing while they're playing something different in the beginning. And then I got into my field because I, I really couldn't explain this machine. What is tempo? How fast is a certain rhythm? What is the, what is the downbeat? Or when is it note just timed slightly laid back or hasty? Uh, and it is not just a longer note. So how do these things work? So all my music theory and my musical experience as a musician couldn't help me to making explicit, like how do we perceive things? And then I ran into a paper by Christopher Longwood Higgins in Nature, who had an algorithm of how he thought that worked. <laughs> and I found that so fascinating that you could explain it to a computer, the things that I couldn't explain to a computer, and therefore also really understand how it could work. And that's how I got into science. Then I, I wanted to figure that one out. And, uh, and since then I am... Uh, yeah, again, switching fields once in a while. It's healthy, right? It's, it's healthy for uh, for a person, but it is academically it's 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 not wise to move uh, from computer <laughs> yeah. science to psychology and from psychology to biology. That's that's generally not advised, I would say. But I couldn't help it because I've always thought that the the, the answers would probably be in this other toolkit, and I still have this dream that the other toolkit will solve it. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of how I got into science, and I'm still sort of. Uh, I'm combining all these toolkits from these different fields, from psychology, from computer science, and more recently biology, in trying to figure out how does this work and how do we, why do we, how come a melody sticks in our mind? How come one rhythm is more exciting than the other rhythm? Uh, how does that work and why is it so relevant for us? Why do we, why do we care so much about music? Yeah. And I think that obviously the biological dimension is, is what we want to focus on in a bit, but can we stick with the AI world? Um, your fear about AI taking over and making the most beautiful, perfect music, where do we stand with that right now? Is this a fear that a lot of people share? How close are we to that world? I didn't have a fear. It was a utopia. <laughs> I thought it would have been beautiful <laughs> if that was okay. the case. Uh, if the machine would really help you in, in making exactly what you had in mind, that would have been mm. beautiful. And, and, and some of the technologies are capable of doing so. And, but it is, it is now more common. It's really integrated in what was used to be very special is now in all types of pop music, things like auto-tune or uh, all these these tricks that we thought was, were very fancy are now very common. But you see that it is just integrated with a normal guitar and a real person singing. And that is not something I expected. I thought a completely overturn of technology. <laughs> but so, so how much of I mean, I can imagine that AIs are writing music, you know, not, not just activating auto-tune or, you know, making small tweaks to music, but actually writing melodies and, you know, thinking about the structure of choruses and stuff. So is, is that happening? And are any of these songs, like, becoming widely known? Yeah, a few people seriously working on that. Um, and also companies very much interested in it, because yeah. uh, I know Spotify uh, has a department that works on these kind of things to make music that sounds like the Beatles, but isn't. Uh, probably for copyright reasons. <laughs> um, and they are relatively successful. Uh, some of my colleagues also at Google, there is this, a similar program in trying to make artificial music in certain styles. And copying the styles, an existing style, that is really can be very convincing nowadays it, on a small scale. So if you hear a fragment of music and say, well, this is you can't distinguish it from, from 
something else from the same band or for the same composer. But if you take longer phrases, most of the models then have problems. You recognize that it is a pastiche, that it is not, that there is not a longer idea happening. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of these models fail still. So that's the challenge. Interesting. Um, all right, let's let's turn into biology. Um, and definitions are, are often tricky. I think this may be one of the more more daunting ones, at least that I can imagine. Can you tell us what music, what is music, and what is musicality? Yeah, I like to 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 disentangle the two because that is actually also a trick that we uh, discovered in our field. If you talk about music, anything can be music, at least to humans. So that's that's a difficult one. A famous example being John Cage's 433 silence. If you put it in the in the right frame, people in a concert hall are willing to listen to nothing for four and a half minutes. And they consider that music for good reasons. Because we, we, we can hear music in virtually anything that we hear. Uh, we hear a train coming by. It's a nice rhythm. It's musical. So that says something about our minds and not so much about the music. So therefore, in our field, we, we're not so much looking at whether or discussing whether something is music or not, or good music or bad music, but actually what are the skills that you need as a human or as a machine if you're doing computer science in order to recognize and appreciate music. And then you move the focus from music, the object, the sound, to uh, the listener, the capacity for music. And that's, that, that's the, the latter is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the capacity for music. What is that? Why do we have that? So if I'm hearing you correctly, that means from the human perspective, there's no sound that isn't music. I mean, if silence is music, then it, literally everything is music. When you start to go at, as we're going to do in just a minute, when you start to talk about non-human animals, is, is that the same way that you approach this question and or maybe we need to talk about musicality first before we can answer that question no it's good to yeah you, you you have a good point there it's good to contrast it there as well i think because i, I mean you often get the question like like a, a bird that sings a nightingale for instance that is that is musical that is music isn't it or whales mm -hmm. singing or orcas uh, beautiful patterns of melodies and in our ears yes of course it is music because we listen to it as humans and therefore it is music and the question should actually be the other way around when is it music to an orca or to a humpback whale or to a other bird and and that question is much more difficult to answer but that's that's where now lots of behavioral biologists are involved in to say like like what are these components that makes a bird also musical and in what way are they musical and how far does it is it similar or different than our human perception so again these two things like the the music as the object versus the capacity for music and that's an interesting uh, mm -hmm. contrast mm -hmm. let me ask one more question along these lines and it's a, a kind of thought experiment so if we if we run into an alien civilization at some point and we're listening in on their communications, would we be able to distinguish, say, them talking versus them playing music? Like, would, would, would we be able to identify music? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You would expect no. That is the most easiest interpretation, that it is a sound signal. Yeah. And why, why would you interpret that just in one single way, that it is a communicative linguistic signal? And it's actually also one of the theories that people have about uh, the, his the, the history or the evolutionary history of music that is actually, it's part of language. Strangely enough, maybe humans are special, uh, we, we can separate between the two. <laughs> A good example, I think, is the speech to song illusion. 
that's a phenomenon that if I explain, I, I give you the title of the, of the book, The Evolving Animal Orchestra. I give you the title of the book, The Evolving Animal Orchestra. If, it, if I do that a few times, I, if I repeat that, after a while, you're not listening to me anymore what I'm saying, but you're listening to the tic-a-tic-a-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
And the explanation there is that the hearing is already working in the last three months of the pregnancy. It's active and they pick up sounds from the environment. The Dutch intonation pattern is downward and the French intonation pattern on average is upward. And they pick that up and they imitate it in their crying. So it's okay. actually one component of also, yeah, sort of, again, Darwin's idea that actually musicality or the sensitivity for intonation patterns precedes language. They use the sensitivities of imitating intonation patterns, the way you, you hear a new language, you try to pick up where are the, where is the stress pattern, the global things. And in mm -hmm. that way, you learn the language, you learn where the word boundaries are because of this musical skill uh, that helps you to, to figure that one out. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's again, beautiful. there, so in ontogenic perspective, there's also this sort of first the musicality and then the language and music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we keep we keep invoking Darwin, not surprisingly, um, and you know it, it seems that a lot of your work was inspired by his ideas that humans have music because we have nervous systems and probably a lot of other species do. So, can you walk us through maybe the the few things that he said that inspired you, and then how that led you into the studies that you were doing with um, Hugo Merchant's lab on macaques? Yeah, it is the. I think it is the motto of the book. That is, uh, uh, he didn't Darwin didn't wrote a, a lot about music, but he he. Um, but he wrote a few things that are very inspirational. <laughs> and he, he wrote the perception, if not the enjoyment, very important addition, of musical cadences and of rhythm is probably common to all animals and no doubt depends on the common uh, physiological nature of their nervous systems. So he thought all animals should be able to perceive melodies and rhythms and should get pleasure out of it. And I found that such an inspirational idea because that's, a, that's, that's quite a claim. <laughs> And this was written in 1871. And I think in 2009, we had the first animal that at least could show that it had a sense of rhythm. So that was, there was no documentation of this hypothesis whatsoever until very recently. In 2009, a study by Annie Patel from Tufts University, he showed that a, a cockatoo, a silver-crested cockatoo, could pick up the regularity of the music. When the music was sped up, he would move faster. If it was slowed down, he would move slower. So he has this, what we call beat perception. Was that Snowball? Yeah, it was. Yeah, in case anybody wants to look uh, for the videos. I, I watched the videos of Snowball. Amazing. Everybody loves <laughs> Snowball. He's, he's an ambassador, I would say, of our field at the moment. <laughs> but the first animal, the documented case, so that, and, and since then, more biologists got, got interested in this phenomenon of musicality and the components of it, and to see in how far we share some components with other animals. And since then, more animals have been found that also also sort of confirm that Darwin was at least not completely wrong. <laughs> uh, it is not all over the place. It's very difficult to find them, but there are a few species uh, with interesting relationships that, that have some of these musical skills that we are, have identified as being fundamental to uh, our capacity for music. Turning to rhesus macaques, as I understand it, your motivation was to look at another primate relatively closely related to us, but not, not as close as things like chimpanzees or the other great apes, and to ask questions about how their brains perceive the possibility of, of understanding beats, so beat perception as, as we perceive the beats. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what you did with the rhesus macaques and, and what you were looking for to determine whether or not they can perceive the beat. Yeah, I was fair, that was my first, uh, how do you call it, step towards biology. Uh, I, I did an experiment uh, with a colleague uh, with newborn babies. 
an EEG experiment. So we're measuring the electric potential. And, and these are human babies you're talking about now? Human babies, yeah, really human babies. Yeah. 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 So before I went to, to other non-human animals. And a method, we developed a method in which we could measure on the skull uh, the potential while they were listening to rhythms. And we had a technique where we could uh, uh, show that they were sensitive or not to the regularity of the, of the rhythm. We removed a note, it was a drum rhythm, we moved a note once in a while on the downbeat, on the first beat of the, of the rhythm, and sometimes uh -huh. in other places in the rhythm. And then we could see that there was a mismatch in activity, a, a signal that the auditory system is surprised that something is not happening because there's a high expectation something will happen. It does not happen. So you get sort of a spike in the brain waves in some way that indicate that surprise. Yeah, yeah a collection of yeah. neurons then fires, and that is, has been documented very well, is, is an indicator of auditory expectations being violated. So that's a trick in which you can sort of, with a baby that can't do any questionnaires or other behavioral tests, to see what, what are they hearing. And we had the same silences or removed notes in different positions, and you saw that there were mostly surprised if you move the notes on the downbeat. So they already have this, apparently, this high expectation something will happen on the downbeat. It does not happen. They're more surprised. And on the other positions, they're less or not surprised at all. And that I found intriguing because that suggested that it is not likely a learned skill, which was the hypothesis up till then, that it was really because yeah, parents move their children regularly. And there's all kinds of theories that says, well, that is a typical human learned behavior. But this suggested that it was active at day one. <laughs> And since the method was so relatively simple, I thought, well, uh, if Darwin is right, that we should share that at least with our nearest neighbors. So I, I looked for, and that is also what I described in the book, for, some, for a lab that was willing to do, apply this technique to monkeys to see like, yeah, to look at the, the, yeah, the first part of the tree to see like how uniquely human is it or is, do we indeed share it with other animals? Because yes, these brains of rhesus macaques are very similar to human brains. They're an animal model of the human brain, so I would expect that they would have beat perception as well. It took me a long time to convince other labs because they didn't want to do this. This is a non-invasive method, and most of them use invasive methods, and I didn't want to do that for obvious reasons. I thought it was not the appropriate thing to do for this type of question. This is not a biomedical research. This is You, you would think they would be thrilled about trying out non-invasive techniques. Uh, yes, but also very wary that the, 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 most of the advice I got, you can't do that because the muscles generate too much electrical energy. So they, they just thought it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work, basically, was the argument. Okay. And then I found out, together with Hugo Merchant, who was my partner in Querétaro in Mexico, that it worked out, that it, we did all the basic experiments first. So we first had to show that the method worked, that the auditory system would pick it up, all these preliminary experiments. And then we did the same experiments as it is with the newborn human babies. And then, yeah, much to my disappointment, I have to say, I'm not allowed <laughs> to say, but I, is that they did not pick that up. So the, the rhesus macaques noticed all the emissions and not especially the ones on the downbeat. So they didn't have beat perception. And it's something we replicated a few years ago, again, with, with two other monkeys. And again, no, no evidence for that. So back to square one, then that suggests that beat perception is uniquely human and we don't share that with other rhesus macaques. So that's why that was a whole, it took me a few years to work on that and, and to also to build on a theory that is more gradual by nature. So since then we came up with a more gradual theory and that's now, uh, by other labs, it's now step by step, it's getting confirmed. So it is not certainly that the humans have that, but it is apparently within the primate species, it's growly 
uh, developed or get or gotten more stronger or getting better. Uh, yeah. So so maybe can you just articulate that that more gradual theory that you were just mentioning? It ha it has a name, right? And so maybe just encapsulate that idea for us. Yeah, I can be honest about the things. I think it was it was because of my big disappointment that Rhesus macaques couldn't didn't show beat perception while being an animal model of the human brain that I thought I, we have to come up with an alternative, with an explanation of this. So both Hugo and I, we, we both read the whole available literature and then came up with this idea that it might have been something that gradually evolved. The brain structures in the rhesus macaques are similar than in terms of we expect are, are necessary for beat perception as humans. So it's the motor cortex and the auditory cortex and the, especially the connections between these two areas. And, and we predicted that probably chimpanzees, which are genetically closer to us than rhesus macaques, would have sort of a, a, a marginal uh, version of that. At least that would have some sensitivity to the regularity. It seems rhesus macaques, they can do time experiments. Eh? They can judge time intervals very well, even better than we can. But the moment it is repetitive intervals, they, they don't have this overview. They don't, can pay, for some reason, mm. can't pick up that structure. So, so they can hear individual intervals, but they very, don't... Very clearly, yeah. Sure. Like, is this interval longer than, than that one? Or uh, how mm -hmm. long is this particular interval? They can really judge that very well, but not mm -hmm. multiple interval. Not that it's repetitive. Yeah, okay. And while, while for us and for children, that's trivial. If you hear dance music, they start moving. They hear immediately... <laughs> Uh, uh, what the beat of the music is. So that was that's a contradiction that we couldn't explain very well to ourselves. And then we came up with, with, with looking at the literature with, that there might be two networks involved in which one network is equally evolved in macaques and humans, which can do these things like uh, interval judgments, single interval judgments. Uh, we call it um, absolute timing. And the other one, uh, repetitive intervals for which you need the link with the motor cortex and some other uh, networks uh, according to the literature. And that is something that we have very strongly. We need particular connections and they are more connected in humans than they are as compared to rhesus macaques. And probably also slightly stronger in chimpanzees. So the hypothesis was that we would expect that chimpanzees would have a little bit of beat perception. And, and, and this was called the gradual audio-motor uh, evolution uh, hypothesis. So that, that it is uh, gradually evolving within the primates, ignoring all the other animals for the moment, including Snowball. <laughs> so, yeah, and that was a more gradual theory, basically. And, and that is, is something that was recently uh, confirmed with one or two experiments by the lab of, by the Primate Research Institute in, in Kyoto, who work with chimpanzees. This is Yuko Hattori. Yeah, she's also in the book, but then she didn't do those experiments that explicitly as yet. She did it very indirectly because you, you can't do these elect electrode experiments with chimpanzees. It's not allowed by the ethical committee because they will pull them off and, and will eat them or something. <laughs> I don't know what they do with it. <laughs> uh, so that was a pity. So you, we couldn't do the same experiment. So Yuko thought of, of, of a setup that was far more um, far more indirect, using a keyboard with light lights because of that. Yeah, the chimpanzees are very good in visual experiments. Eh? They know when something lights up, they know that they have to press buttons. So she used keys with lights that pressed up. And then she was hoping for spontaneous behavior while they were listening to music. So that, those were the first studies. And you could see that some of these animals could learn that. But now more recently, she published in a PNNS uh, paper where she could show that they start to spontaneously behave to the same rhythms that we presented also to the, to the newborn babies and to the rhesus macaques. So mm -hmm. they have a spontaneous reaction to starting to move, but they don't synchronize with it. So it's not like snowball or like a human, but at least they have this impulse to start and move if there is regularity perceivable. 
So in that way, that is one small piece of evidence that suggests that this might be the case, that it is a gradual uh, evolution where these connections have been more stronger between the motor cortex and the auditory cortex uh, in humans oh, as opposed to other monkeys. Interesting. So, um, you know, let's try to get Snowball into this this story. We, we've had on, you, you probably know Eric Jarvis, um, who's been a, a champion of the the vocal learning hypothesis for, you know, different reasons. I don't, we didn't talk with Eric about um, musicality, but uh, that was back in episode 57. What is the vocal learning hypothesis? Does that help us make sense of how Snowball fits in? How does that connect to your ideas about gradual, you know, taking on of these, these things in humans? Yeah, vocal learning was sort of uh, the first idea that came up to explain why do we share beat perception with, uh, with a cockatoo and not with other monkeys. Uh, we have vocal learning, a cockatoo is a vocal learner, and a monkey is not. So that would explain uh, the differences. So for a long time, and that was also an idea by Adi Patel, the discoverer of uh, Snowball, already in 2006, that he, uh, without knowing about Snowball, I have to say, so that it was a pretty nice study where he said, well, it's this, especially these motor area uh, functions and the links that that has with the auditory system and with the larynx and probably with the syrinx in birds that that was preconditional or a prerequisite for beat perception. Snowball, uh, in that sense, confirmed that hypothesis, uh, and since then more studies have been done that are more systematic than the ones that have been, could be done with, with Snowball in the lab. And you show that could show that buttery gars also are sensitive to uh, to the, these regularities. But since then also, because it's a, b a wonderful hypothesis, and also wonderful because it's so, it's falsifiable. Huh? <laughs> that's nice when that's possible. <laughs> we white scientists love that. <laughs> that doesn't happen too often. So most yeah, uh, colleagues dive then on, okay, let's try and falsify it because that gives you the most high impact. So a group at uh, Santa Cruz, uh, California, trained a uh, Californian sea lion, known not to be a vocal learner, at least... Uh, it has not been shown as yet, uh, to try and synchronize to music or to different sound signals. And they were successful. And that's, yeah, in short, basically, that's the state of affairs currently in our field. So, confusion. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you feel like, this, just, just to be explicit, that you feel like the sea lion uh, experiment discards the vocal learning hypothesis because they apparently don't have vocal learning and yet they can perceive the beat. Yeah, and that makes is it, it a falsification that... in that sense. Uh, but you can also be less critical and say, okay, it is, has not been shown as yet. He has, th these animals have a little bit of vocal learning. They, they, they learn some vocalizations, I think, very young. There are people that try to show that they have some flexibility. So the solution now by, by uh, people at Eric Jarvis, but also Ani Patel, is to say, well, maybe vocal learning is of a gradual nature. That's always the, the most wise way out. <laughs> so, and then, then it might be the case that Ronan is an exception, that he can learn this but that probably he won't be able uh, to have do it in, in, in a natural environment, that it is really something that he's capable of and can be trained to do, but it is so exceptional that it is in that sense not a falsification. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With, with, with the, I mean, you've got all the birds, you know, the 20,000 species of birds that potentially are, are opportunities for um, future research, but what about the other vocal learners? Has there not yet been efforts in bats or elephants to ask about this relationship in completely different evolutionary groups and you know that that too could be some support for the idea if yeah i expect that those studies will 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 be done or are being done but i don't know about them as yet because it's too attractive to do that uh within the the focal uh, the, the avian species a lot of studies have been done and also you see clear like zebra finches for instance are also focal learners 
but have no beat perception. So there is, it's not all the focal learners within the avian species, but yeah. only some. Yeah, elephants are interesting, but experimentally not ideal, I would say. Very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> um, I expect in the bats, uh, the, these two big bat labs that there are now, uh, I would be surprised if they were not trying to do this. And uh, what I also think is a nice challenging one is to, to look for animals that are undisputable non-focal learners, like dogs or horses. And if you're capable of, of having them showing spontaneous uh, synchronization or, or show that they have beat perception, then it's also a, uh, a weakening of the theory, if that's your aim. Or at least uh, it will show that, it, that we might need another type of theory that explains right. this peculiar sensitivity that we humans have and that comes so easily for some peculiar reason. We have to move. Eh? That's a very strange thing. We hear music. Lots of things change. If you look at the spectrogram, yes. it's a mess. <laughs> but we start doing this, <laughs> going up and down. <laughs> Almost everyone does that. That's 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 weird. Let, let me ask another uh, question about about birds. Uh, and this is derived from a, a, another recent paper. This is one in Science Advances in 2017 by Robert Heinsohn that looked at palm cockatoos and the beats that they produce. And I've I've watched the videos of of these palm cockatoos uh, tapping out the beat, and they're just amazing. They have, you know, they're they're up in the up in the tree. They grab a tool like a you know a seed pod, and then they clack it repeatedly on the branch in a very rhythmic way. And and much of the paper was devoted to to analyzing whether or not it truly was a rhythmic sort of beating. And the and the conclusion was yes. What do, what do you think about that in relation to to your ideas about beat perception and and vocal learning? Yeah, I remember when it came out. It was an exciting study. I was allowed to read it just before the embargo. And I thought it was very exciting. But at the same time, it, you could give it alternative interpretations. Yeah? Because, I mean, here, the, the difficult thing with these, with a lot of these things is just as the same discussion as we had in the beginning between music and musicality. If you produce rhythmical sounds, you don't necessarily are sensitive or to rhythmical sounds. Meaning you might be able to tap them out, but you're not perceiving them as a rhythm necessarily? Is that what you mean? Is Aware mean? of the regularity. Maybe it's just because the motor system, a nice regular movement is is easy for the motor system. It might be that, you, that that is what you can do very nicely. And in beat perception, if it's faster or slower, you adapt the speed of your hand if you're tapping along. But in perception also, you, you hear that it's faster or slower. So in, in terms of the definition of beat perception, to be sensitive to the regularity is more than just that you have regular behavior. So you have to, to make sure that this animal is not only being able to, of producing regular behavior, but also perceptually sensitive to it. And that part they didn't do as yet, but yeah, it could be yeah. that they are. Right. My, my recollection is that they showed that the different birds had different beats. Some of them beat very fast and some were very slow. But yeah, that, that doesn't show that they can change the beat based on what they're perceiving. No, yeah. because they probably all have their own eigenfrequency. They have their own yeah. nice rhythm, yeah. which fits to the length and the thickness of their legs. Uh, right. so, so you need to show that it's flexible. So the, the word flexible is an important one in the definition of yeah. uh, beat perception. Yeah. But it is a beautiful study. And since then also, anecdotally, I get these videos sent of animals making music all over all the time. And there is now in, in uh, I think it is in Brazil, a uh, uh, very nice um, video of a, I think it is also a small cockatoo who also 
has a, a glass of beer, or a can of beer in his hand, and he's, and he's singing, it's sort of a beer song. <laughs> this regular tapping of this beer thing on the floor. So it's a similar behavior as these cockatoos that, that uh, Heinzson is uh, describing. And this bird, yeah, apparently having a lots of pleasure. So the enjoyment uh, phrase of, of, of Darwin is applicable there too. So I, <laughs> I would love to see if they're also perception, uh, in perception, if they're sensitive to this regularity. That would be a nice addition to these kind of studies. I want to turn to sort of humans in particular, talking about other differences, especially with regard to pitch and animals versus versus humans. But um, we brought up twice now pleasure, and that was something that, that Darwin said. So let's just talk about it and then move on. Besides looking at the cockatoo and sort of assuming that it's having a good time, how much have people dug in to the, you know, endorphin release and such in animals as they're, they're doing these sorts of things in perceiving beats? Do we know? Very little, unfortunately, I think. And I, I do not know that literature very well, but I think there has been... I know only of a few studies that are also described in the book uh, that I uh, came across, but maybe I'm missing a, 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 an important part of the literature and then please send me emails. <laughs> but to measure pleasure or enjoyment in, in animals is indeed in things like endorphin release or hormonal levels. Uh, there, there's a study that I know of Gregory Ball who could show that a, that a bird singing on its own that generates enormous amounts of testosterone release, sort of getting really excited of his own singing, which I thought was a very striking uh, experimental <laughs> thing. And then also that it adapted actually the, the, the encoding of the gene. So it actually had an effect of which genes were active or not. So that was a very nice example of showing that sound or, or singing affects the biology or regulates the biology of the organism that actually produces that sound. A very complex experiment, but I, I thought that there is something of an answer there that this enjoyment or that the biological system rewards you for doing this because this is important is in principle there at least in songbirds and that's that's i think that's not much studied eric jarvis has, has studied that a little bit i, I know uh, but i don't know of much other um, uh, biologists that worked on reliable methods of measuring yeah. pleasure I, I mean, I think I find this particularly compelling for those of us that have terrible singing voices and yet continue to try. There's some pleasure there, maybe. There. <laughs> no matter what others think, you if, should just if stop, we're getting Marty. pleasure, oh, <laughs> shut up. That's probably true, but yeah. Um, all right, so let, let's turn directly to um, to the birds versus versus humans. I mean, we want to talk about really how did, did musicality presumably evolve in people. But but tell us about this this pitch perception in other animals, not humans. We use relative pitch, and other animals have have perfect pitch already what's the difference between those two and and how should we think about that yeah perfect pitch or or absolute pitch is a more common term maybe in in, in the field of biology is, is is that you recognize a signal with all its harmonics basically by its fundamental frequency or some other compromise of that so you recognize uh, the sound by its pitch basically Pavlov has already shown that, that dogs can do that very easily, but it's shown in lots of animals. Most mammals have absolute pitch and also birds have apparently absolute pitch. For a bird, for instance, if you present them a melody and you transpose it up, they recognize it as something else. It's, it's another bird. For us, that is, yeah, it's the same melody, but it's just higher. Or sometimes we don't even hear if a melody was played higher or lower. It's just the same song. And that's what's called relative pitch. So you, what we recognize is the contour, the, the interval structure that we remember. And we remember that better 
or alone than the, the pitches themselves as you would play that on the piano. If it's higher or lower, we don't even notice. So that's interesting that we are, it seems that we also have absolute pitch in a more rudimentary form, similar as all animals, which is something you would expect. And it seems that relative pitch gradually takes over if we're getting older in, in, in infancy. So it seems to be also an, an ontogenetic thing that, that is the, sort of a strategy of the human brain to look more at the relationships between things as opposed to the more absolute aspects of the sound signal or but that most animals actually more focus on the sound signal itself are we the only species of which we're aware that use that has relative pitch or are there any species that do that now what about snowball i mean we know about his amazing beat perception but anything with pitch not that we know i'm working now on a review on that together with a colleague uh, carl ten kate and 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 there's very little evidence at the moment that birds or other or mammals that's the two groups that we focus on have relative pitch. Some examples of two-tone melodies, let's say, that they mm -hmm. judge the intervals. So there's some evidence in, in, in black-capped uh, chickadees and in uh, starlings that they are sensitive to the distance between the tones, but that I remember really the melody by the contour that has not been shown convincingly yet in, in much other animals. I expect that we find that because this, this, these studies have not been done. I mean, musicality has not been really a topic uh, within biology for... Uh, so, so maybe that will happen. So that's making me think about, um, you know, this work, uh, noise pollution in cities and how a lot of bird songs are evolving to be different than they used to be. I mean, I, I didn't realize the ramifications there, but it, then those signals eventually may not be perceived by other populations at all, right? If it's at an absolute pitch, only the urban birds will ever hear and respond to the urban birds, the rural birds, it's, it's going to be different. Yeah, it's a great example. It's a great example. And it shows that, that they are flexible, so they can do it. So you would also expect that they might be able to learn that there is something like relative pitch because it's it's adaptive behavior eh, that they might need in contexts such as these I think it was a Dutch study eh, that they adapted their pitches yeah. to get over the, over yeah. the noise. Yeah, I find that uh, uh, hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask about perfect pitch in humans. And you, you talk some about this in, in your book. And I, I just find perfect or absolute pitch to be so interesting. And I, I don't have it myself. My I, I have been a musician in the past. And my 17-year-old son, Nicholas, is a, quite a serious trumpet player. And we were we're talking about your book the other night and talking about absolute pitch. And so we challenged ourselves to just whistle a, a an A. And, and then run to the piano and see if it was yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And I was, I was actually quite close. I was within maybe half a step, which I thought was good. And I was very proud of that. And then we tried it again the next morning and I was off by like a fourth. So apparently I'm not, I'm not consistent. Um, but you also, you, you said that sometimes if, if somebody is challenged to sing or whistle the first note of a pop song, you can get it right on. And we tried to do that with a, a Queen song and we got it pretty much right on. Which is just astonishing to me because that means like I you know I can't I can't whistle an A on command but you know I can sing the first note relatively accurately so those those things seem contradictory are they yeah oh there's so many aspects to your story nice yeah <laughs> uh, the first one is, is why do people find it so musicians think it is a beautiful talent to have absolute pitch eh? although it is uh -huh. so common in the animal world I don't see what is so special about it but we have uh -huh. this fascination that we could do that it's like it's of course also a game eh? name this tone is it a c sharp or 
or a C flat and then can do it. But interesting, and I think also informative, is if we do that with songs that we know very well, like uh, I always do it with uh, Staying Alive from the Bee Gees. I ask people to think of Staying Alive of the Bee Gees, sing it to me. And four out of five times, it's exactly the right pitch. It's exactly the right tempo. That shows that there's lots of information that we can remember in such a complex sound structure. Better than a single tone, which is not very informative. Out of nowhere, a C sharp is strange. I mean, when, what is, yeah, that's indeed what birds can do very well. Peep, it's that animal and it's that pitch, so it's that size, so it's him or it's her. Uh, but we can do that with, with, with these complex signals. And, and children are even better at it. Eh? They can hear if you play a tune of a television show to them half a tone higher, they say it's wrong. <laughs> very nice experiments they immediately that's too high <laughs> or that's the right one that's the original so that apparently that sticks in our minds the full complex spectrum not so much the pitch by itself which is what we use the term absolute pitch for so yes yes you you are confirming the theory <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I feel like i ought to be able to and maybe this is just my own personal failing but i feel like if i can do that for songs i ought to be able to then you know, do the interval to get to the A that I want to that I want a whistler sing, and and this does not have to. We don't have to deconstruct my own personal problems here, but it's just a weird mismatch. No, but that is an ethical trick. If you know staying alive over another song that you know very well, and you know that it starts yeah. with a C, you can then use relative pitch and RQL. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to work on that. We can test me in six months and see if I can get it. Yeah, if if you want to sing on a future show art, so we can all hear how that's going for you, you're welcome to to give that a try. <laughs> that's my <laughs> my deepest dream. <laughs> okay, so um, let let's let's turn explicitly to other humans and stop talking about art for a second um <laughs> how and when do you think music first appeared in human populations or the lineages leading to humans i don't know it's the honest answer of course and speculation i i, I keep on changing my mind here it also is dependent on what you call music because i mean music was the fact that we listen to music all day long is something we can do now 100 years ago you had to do it yourself. And a few thousand years ago, I'm not sure whether music would have been anything related to what we call music now. So the term, maybe the term music is, is we need another term for that. But uh, let's say the musical, the, yeah, the role of intonation and rhythm and dynamics, let's say, of the signal without any syntax and semantics, if we call that damn music, I think that is probably, you would expect to be very old. Because yeah, why would an organism develop this complex organ to make sounds <laughs> uh, it must have some advantage over something else so 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 all the energy that's put in that both in the design of it and also in the production of it because also making loud sounds or or singing all the time is costs energy at the cost of something else so again darwin thought well that is that can't be useless that must have been a function and and very old Therefore, because of or we, we suspect that there were lots of sound-producing and sound-sensitive animals in the evolutionary past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, on the archaeological side, what's the oldest evidence we have? I think in the book you write about a 45,000-year-old flute. Are there updates there? Are we finding more older-than-expected instruments or still rare? Uh, not that I know of. I think it's still the oldest... Uh, flute we know of roughly f the dating is changing a bit so it's getting yeah. more older so 45,000 is, is the reason dating of that particular flute yeah and you can use it as evidence for and against the uh, the evolutionary or, or, or yeah how you call it the 
the oldness of music. I don't know the particular term at the moment. <laughs> but so you can use it for and against these theories. Against in the sense that it is on an evolutionary scale very recent and yeah. actually meaningless. But you could also say, well, the fact that this flute, it has particular tone structure. Some of the intervals are bigger than other ones. It's actually a pentatonic scale, which we think is, is related to our cognitive system. So that suggests that there is a whole history of a cognitive system that developed in a certain way that made these people made that flute in that particular way. And then you can yeah. use it as evidence for all well, music as a very it's much long older. Yeah. prehistoric uh, history. So, so we just splashed right by this, but that... that 45,000-year-old flute, does it have a tonal structure that, that would sound like normal and modern to us? I mean, is it, is it a recognizable tonal? Yeah, it's really, it's really like a, a pentatonic. I think, I think the, the, one of the uh, discoverers played the national anthem on it, uh, the, the American <laughs> national anthem. <laughs> you, you can play those type of melodies. So that's, it's typical uh -huh. pentatonic with the second and the third in it. Can I propose one other way to think about these evolutionary origins? And that would be to sort of survey extant cultures and do sort of comparative musicology and, and do that in a way that focuses on trying to find uh, the sort of common element, the things that are common to all, all musical groups. And, and are there those elements that are known? And can we use those as a way to identify what our human ancestors did and, and perceived with respect to music? Yeah, that's another let's say research strategy so not look at cross species and similarities and therefore say something about evolutionary but look cross-culturally and then see if mm -hmm. you find differences and similarity they might also be indicative of some predispositions yeah. much better said than what i did <laughs> well <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just reminding myself of the topic area uh, by saying it aloud um, and it has been recent also be a uh, a boost in that type of research to uh, starting in 2000 i think this 2015 by a paper by patrick uh, savage and his colleagues and later on sam meyer from harvard university looking at a, at a range of different cultures and looking for similarities and differences. And then you obviously see that there are lots of differences because yeah, music and cultural and social influences makes music very different, but you also see repeatedly similarities. Uh, and these similarities point at the a, at a cognitive and biological constraints. Yeah, I think in the pitch domain, you see that you see that, that there are normally, there are scales often, and scales of like say five to seven notes are the most common scales you find. Uh, and you see that all the scales are uh, have unequal distances, like, for instance, the Neanderthal flute. So it's not all the same distances, which would have been a very reasonable idea, but they are unequal. And there are always discrete tones in, in most of these cultures. So, so that's, yeah, of all the possibilities that you can divide the octave in, in different scales, you see that sometimes as well. But if you look at all music, you see that, yeah, we only use a very small potential of that. And that hints at some cognitive advances of these kind of designs. And in the rhythm domain, you see that there is often a regularity, like there is a beat or a, a duple beat or a triple beat in most cultures, unless there is a religious or social reason why you shouldn't dance to the music. So then it's avoided. <laughs> and it's quite difficult to, to, to make music that affords these type of regularities. But most of them have these regularities. And again, some also classes of rhythms. So it's not all possible rhythms. It's always a subset. Uh, that you find in, in, in all these musics. So that suggests that there is, yeah, that, that there are constraints 
And then if you move to musicality, you can see like how are these constraints, how does the mechanisms work, and why, why do we have that in our culture? Yeah, yeah. Um, as, as an evolutionary biologist, there's always this sort of how did this trait come to be? And when we, talk, when we think about other animals, to think about music as an adaptation, it doesn't necessarily seem such a, a stretch if you want to have a broad definition of music. But is it sensible to think about music as an adaptation in humans? What, what evidence do we have? Or is there some other more reasonable way to think about musicality as a trait? Yeah, it's a big fight at the moment. <laughs> uh, there's a special issue out of, of behavioral and brain sciences with two target papers and I think 90 commentaries. 200 pages. Nine-zero nine zero nine So 200 oh pages of discussion on the, <laughs> origins, a big fight. <laughs> on the origins of music. Well, at least there is some disagreement, uh, which can be a good sign or a bad sign. It also has to do with difficulty of testing these hypotheses. But both of the target papers suggest that there are aspects of music that you could call adaptive. Uh, one says it has to do with social bonding. So in that sense, it's indirect, uh, that mm -hmm. music is a very very effective way an invention actually that we have but an effective way to increase social cohesion and that is an advantage to us humans and that's why music is a typical human thing uh, if i the, the theory is much wider maybe too wide but that's the i think the key the, the social bonding hypothesis and the other one by sam meyer and his colleagues suggested uh, it's called the, the credible signal uh, hypothesis that uh, it's related to sexual selection, but it is disti distinguished from that in the sense that it is actually a way of showing coalitions. So it was very uh, useful, especially entrainment and rhythmic behavior together to, 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 to jump together, for instance, or to right. dance together. As a group, you show you are a coalition and you are in control and you therefore you... Uh, can make an influence on your environment. That that aspect and and the aspect of parent-child bonding, the, the signaling that that, that uh, the infant-directed speech or infant-directed song that we're still using to children, uh, the do 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 da 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 this very strange musical language, emphasized rhythm melodies. That that is also uh, uh, actually a residual of of the origins of music. That that uh, that music or the sensitivity to these intonation patterns and rhythms originate from the sensitivity that we needed then to take care of our early-born. Baby. So these two components are sort of motivating the credible signal uh, hypothesis. And these are only two of the hypotheses that are in the literature. There, there are at least eight more that are often cited, one of them being Steven Pinker's auditory cheesecake hypothesis, saying that music yeah. is actually not an adaptation, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it's really an invention and, uh, and just uh, feeds on things that have been selected for other things. Mm -hmm. Well, Hanken, uh, we're getting... Sort of closer to the end of the time, uh, we thought we'd start to do some wrap-up questions and a few forward-looking things and some just kind of crazy out there questions here at the very end. But but let me first ask you to gaze into your crystal ball and think about the next five or ten years of research on on musicality. You know what what are the big new directions that are gonna that are gonna happen? Are there you know new techniques coming to bear that are gonna reveal? things that we otherwise couldn't couldn't approach uh what what's going to be the state of the field in 10 years well maybe what i hope that's good <laughs> let's, let's do hoping and then if you hope something it often happens you can convince people yeah that, that's a good way to do it yeah uh, several lines i would say one is is that i i hope that more behavioral and neurobiologists get 
interested in these topics and start looking at different types of animals so we get more empirical evidence to support the plentitude of theories that are there so that might be uh, probably if this topic gets remains at the popularity that it has right now thanks to these podcasts as well i think that will give us a lot in 10 years you can do a lot uh secondly uh, what i'm very uh, i think is a promising direction and it's complementary to cross species research is is uh, the the link between musicality and genomics i organized a conference uh, two years ago to invite the, the main people of of that field again another toolkit that is very remote from my own specialities but i find it fascinating uh, and that would allow if we can sort of uh, use all that technology in saying well uh, do we find uh, uh, particular areas in the gene that are related to these the phenotypes that are defining musicality and the first papers are are now in the archives uh, and i hope they end up in the top journals and then that will probably generate an enormous increase because then suddenly you can compare lots of animals just by taking their genomic information and you can also say something about even all the way back to the Neanderthals. So if we get this in in our fingers and we know, yeah, assuming that we find locations that are, that are informative for these different skills, you would expect it, otherwise it's not biologically embedded. That would give to the an enormous uh, change in the field, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's super interesting. And, and and just so I'm clear, you're you're looking for sort of genome-wide associations between you know SNPs or alleles and various aspects of musical phenotypes in, in humans. Yes. So so you take for instance beat perception, and you have a measure of showing how well somebody is with beat perception. You need the variability there. That's the phenotype, and you correlate it with the variation you find in the genome oh, yeah. of wow. a, a large collection of people. And then you see these yeah. peaks. You will hope to, to find these peaks. Yeah, right, right. You've got a lot to look for. I mean, the genome is large. Something's reasonably likely to pop out. Along these same lines, I was I was surprised, but then I saw, you know, over the course of the book, it was super informative and, and, and it made a lot of sense. But um, we've talked today, and the book is largely about beat perception, and then there's some things about pitch. But to me, and I'm naive, so maybe this is meaningless, but music seems to have so many other dimensions. I mean, are there other dimensions? We, we talked about the difficulty of the pleasurable side, and there's the need and maybe some some progress there. But what are the other dimensions of music that you think warrant study and maybe we're getting close to being able to tackle? Yeah, you're right that the book is basically about beat perception because that has been my core research for the last 30 years, basically. But I also find it embarrassing <laughs> and a bit rigid. <laughs> There's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I better do it right or not. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm go for it or not. So that's also with music making. I, I gave up because I wanted to do only this. But now uh, for the next five years, I'm, I'm planning to move to pitch, but especially to, to timbre, to sound color, to spectral aspects of sound. Because also thanks, I think, to the, the collaborations with bird uh, researchers that we figured out that they're not paying so much attention to pitch and rhythm, but far more to the spectral quality of the sound. Something that we humans, again, ignore most of the time. Eh? If you hear a melody on the flute or if I hear a melody on the guitar, the same melody, it's to us, it's the same melody. We don't even notice that it was a different instrument. To a bird again, completely different thing. And that I find so fascinating at the moment that that's, I think, where there can also be a lot of progress in, in if we go away from the music theoretical ideas that music is about pitch and rhythm that you can notate, but it is also or probably mainly or originally about spectral quality, the same way as we listen to speech, 
that that might be an opening of the field. And there are some papers that are already hinting, I described them in the book, that are already hinting in that direction, that birds are actually listening in another way, which might be saying something about the original way in which we listen to sounds as well. Well, we'd like to end by just asking you a very open-ended thing that we ask all of our guests, and that is, uh, is there anything else you would like to say that we haven't covered? Ooh, no, I find it always a very, I, I, I love to react. <laughs> <laughs> I have no, I, I don't, I don't uh, there is so many things to say and then I start babbling anyway. So no, no, I'm very happy with the line, <laughs> okay, with great. the nice structured uh, agenda that you have. Well, thank, thanks so much for joining us today. This is, this is really fascinating. Um, it, the book is, is absolutely amazing. Um, do you have any plans to continue? Is there going to be a part two at somewhere, some point in the future? I, when I finished it, I thought, well, this will be my last book. It's over now. I worked for, for too long on it, uh, five years or something. Because it is yeah. a diary, yeah? so it's really, I had to wait for the next result. Uh, I'm not going to do that again in that way. Uh, the next one is going to be more com like, this is the theory and you believe it or not, something type of writing. But I, I had a lot of pleasure. It's, it's, it's been translated now in, in, in many different languages. It's really, it's nice to see. And, and, it, and it's also nice because, I mean, the whole book, as you know, it's, it's more about failure. <laughs> well, that's science. It's <laughs> about thinking okay. aloud and then, yeah. uh, then that is about like, this is the way it is and maybe the next book has to be more like okay now we know this and this and this because that's some lots of some people are frustrated when they read the book in the end to think yeah and uh, yeah. but yeah that's the situation exactly. <laughs> yeah this yeah. is the way that it always is well hey thank you so much we really appreciate the time nice talking to you yeah so much, very nice conversation well, i appreciate it Thanks for listening to the episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review where you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to hear that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk to Henry G. about his new book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth. Henry's long-term editorship at Nature Magazine has given him a great perspective on the development of biology over the past few decades. His book is an awesome take on the key evolutionary steps of life on Earth. Thank you to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demry for producing the episode. Thanks also to Natasha Damright for writing the script and Brad Van Periden, Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, and Kyle Smith for helping to produce this episode. Keating Shamari produces our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Potty Bear, Brad Van Periden, and Tiernan Costello. <laughs>